0: Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu slash join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or IntegrityFirstInsuranceServices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region. Working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, along with co-host Laurie McRobbie. Today we're talking about Indiana's decision on abortion and what Indiana residents should expect The legislature is still in session. They met for five hours yesterday looking at the bill, and I think there were a total of about 62 amendments that they were going over. So we think we, uh, things are always in flux, so we'll talk about some of that, but we'll talk about the general issue um, more today. We've got three guests with us. Dr. Tracy Wilkinson is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Indiana University. Dr. Katie McHugh is an OBGYN and abortion provider in Indiana, and Dr. Carolyn Carey-Rouse is a maternal fetal medicine specialist and assistant professor of OBGYN at IU. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at news at org. You can also join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. Well, thank you all for being here with us today. We know you're you're very busy uh, these days with, and not just talking to the media, but uh, taking care of patients and taking care of students and doing all that you do. So I I wanna start, I guess we can start with, um, with Dr. Tracy Wilkinson and just ask about, you know these these new uh, or the you know the, the overturning of Roe v Wade and then the Indiana legislature getting in and trying to come up with some sort of an abortion ban. Can you just give us an overview of what that means for you in in your work?
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, it is not surprising following um, the Supreme Court decision that Indiana is trying to pass an abortion ban. We anticipated that this would happen, but I do want to say to everybody listening that the ban that is currently um, being proposed is much more severe than any of us um, anticipated and is incredibly concerning. Um, I am a pediatrician, and I am very concerned about the impact that this will have on my patients, um, my my patients families the communities that i work in and also all of my colleagues the chilling impact of the criminalization of providers in this proposed legislation is incredibly concerning um, and i am a faculty member in hearing from learners people in medical school people in residency that are concerned about their ability to stay in our state Eight and continue to practice. And so the ramifications of this legislation are far beyond what the State House is thinking about.
1: And Dr. McHugh, you are an abortion provider in an OBGYN, so obviously this is going to change your practice and what you do.
3: Absolutely. Um, it has been one of the greatest honors of my career to be an abortion provider. Um, it's work that I take great pride in and that I um, really enjoy doing because it is such an amazing opportunity to connect with patients and to provide a service um, and, and to provide a moment of compassion in a space where uh, compassion is so sorely lacking from our society. Uh, my practice will change significantly given uh, these bans and and given these restrictions and uh, the the thought that this compassionate and medically supported care that i provide um, would be a felony and would be a um an opportunity for uh people to to target me or to chase after uh, the patients that i am so Honored to serve is so heartbreaking to me. So I am trying to figure out what the next steps of my career will be.
1: And Dr. Rouse, you're a maternal-fetal medicine specialist. I know I watched a, a short video of you um, online. It's you know one of the IU Health videos, and you talked about how much you appreciate your job because of your ability to work with your patients and work with um, the the mothers through often difficult pregnancies, how's this gonna make your life different?
4: Um, So much like uh, what Dr. McHugh said, this uh, proposed legislation um, is going to impact my my practice greatly. So as a maternal fetal medicine specialist, um, I take care of pregnant people who have pretty significant pre-existing medical conditions, who've had prior pregnancy complications, or who have a pregnancy that is currently complicated by a medical condition that occurs in pregnancy or by something uh, like a birth defect or a chromosome abnormality that's detected in the fetus. Um, My job is to counsel my patients about the risks to them in the setting of their medical conditions or their pregnancy complications um, and help them decide what is the best for them, knowing those risks um, in terms of uh, continuing the pregnancy or deciding to have an abortion. And this legislation puts itself directly in between me and the patient, um, which compromises that relationship and compromises the care that I can provide.
1: We appreciate so much having all three of you on. I do want to say at this time that we did invite uh, legislators who are pushing for uh, the abortion ban. We invited people who represent groups who support that position, and and none of them uh, accepted our invitations to come on. So, Lori.
5: Yeah, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more, uh, and this is, I think, something that uh, Dr. Rouse can speak to, but but possibly also, well, possibly all three of you, which is how this proposed legislation is going to affect medical training and affect the way uh, residents, OBGYN residents, pediatric residents, uh, med school students, um, the whole uh, uh, population of up-and-coming medical specialists uh, who will potentially uh, be facing a world in which those kinds of skills are uh, are not as easy to attain, and uh, and there might be complications in acquiring them? What 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 are those impacts as you see it? And uh, Dr. Rouse, if yeah, you could I've... kick us off there.
4: Um, so i'm i'm very concerned about everything about this bill is concerning but um specifically as it relates to um train attraction training and retention of uh medical students and residents and fellows and young faculty um this bill is going to compromise that for our state um so abortion training uh, is a critical component of uh, OBGYN residency. And while residents um, are certainly able to uh, decide to not participate in some aspects of that care, every OBGYN resident needs to be prepared to take care of early pregnancy complications such as miscarriage um, or uh, or stillbirth when it happens um, earlier in pregnancy. Um, And that that training is going to be compromised um, by this bill i think what is also really concerning is that uh, trainees do not want to be practicing uh, uh, eventually after they graduate or training in an environment um, where evidence-based healthcare is being criminalized um, so, we are already hearing, as Tracy mentioned earlier um, from our trainees, about the fear that they have about staying in Indiana um, and about the, the um, probability that they will, in fact, look for employment after graduation outside of our state because of these laws.
5: And, Dr. Wilkinson, on the pediatric side, what other implications do you see for medical training?
2: I mean, yeah, I piggyback on everything that Carrie just said. Um, You know, we provide reproductive health care in pediatrics. And so I think all of our residents are nervous that although these are attacks on abortion care now, that this will trickle down to other care that we provide, such as birth control um, and STI screening and all of the above. Furthermore, you know, we have already started to see attacks on trans healthcare, which is well within the pediatric healthcare realm. And so when you start thinking about where you want to go train, where you're gonna graduate with the most comprehensive, up-to-date, evidence-based knowledge to be competitive on the job market, I don't really see how choosing programs in Indiana would make sense for that. And so these are trickle-down effects that are incredibly, incredibly hard to turn around quickly. Um, We also, in our state, already have multiple counties that have been deemed primary care deserts, obstetric deserts contraception access deserts. And that was all before this legislation was proposed. So we can anticipate that those will get worse as people leave our state or choose not to stay.
1: Dr. McHugh, how many abortion providers have there been in Indiana? And how how has the access to abortion been chipping away even in the last decade or so?
3: abortion access in indiana has always been problematic but it has become so much more so over the last 10 years um, as our indiana legislature has increasingly enacted laws that are for the sole purpose of trapping abortion providers and abortion clinics things like reporting requirements and clinic inspections and um the different Uh, restrictions and regulations around room sizes, um, et cetera. These are not um, aimed to protect patients' well-being or health. They are not aimed to ensure um, safe access um, or medically accurate care. They are only aimed to make it more difficult to practice abortion care uh, and to provide this uh, service to patients. So over the last 10 years, we have seen uh, the number of abortion clinics dwindle in Our state and, similarly, the number of abortion providers has dropped significantly. Um, And then now, even those who want to be an abortion provider have difficulty finding a place to do that work in Indiana simply because there are not very many clinics available. And, of course, these clinics, especially the independent clinics, will be forced to close once the Indiana legislature enacts uh, permanent bans on abortion these clinics cannot survive um, without um, the protection that we previously had, and so those clinics will close.
1: I have a question that I don't know. I, I don't know if you will, will have heard this one before, but I'm just curious. I was talking to three, um, three young mothers uh, recently in a, in a social setting, and there were six, six little children running around in the, in the group, and it was right after the Roe v. Wade decision, they were on the political spectrum. I mean, they were from really quite conservative to quite liberal. But all three of them had had a problem pregnancy. So I guess that sort of leads me to my question for all three of you. I assume there's no, uh, you know, you have no political test when you get a patient. So your patients must come from the conservative backgrounds and liberal backgrounds. What are you hearing from your patients, from young women? about um, the law and about the overturn of Roe v. Wade? Uh,
3: So, I'll start with that one just because it's sometimes um, interesting for people to hear what patients who seek abortion care uh, are actually thinking about abortion care. I have um, always been entertained um, by my patients and the conversations we have. We talk about their families, we talk about their career aspirations, we talk about the weather, we talk about all kinds of things, But often we talk about politics and we talk about how abortion will affect um, what people will be able to do with their lives. Uh, So, you know, before the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court, I routinely saw people from across the political spectrum, including sometimes people who came from our own picket lines, from our own protesters they would come in and they would have their abortion and they would lie on the table in front of me and tell me that I was going to hell that what I was doing was terrible but that their abortion was different and that they shouldn't have had to go through the same process that other people did and I would perform their abortion and ensure they were safe and then send them on their way back out to the picket line Other times people would come in and they would pray the rosary while I was performing their abortion and I would sit with them in a moment of sacredness while we performed this act to reinforce the person's autonomy and to ensure that that person could continue on their life in the way that they believed that God had planned out for them. Politics doesn't belong in that moment. Politics is not welcome in this moment of of pure personal decision and autonomy. So we talk about politics, we, we discuss different things going on in the world, but a political decision is not welcome within this sacred context of a patient and a person making a decision about their own life and their own body.
5: Thank you. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I, this is sort of getting into, uh, obviously you're all medical professionals, but a little bit into the um, the legal side of things uh, in, in terms of what you're anticipating, and also where things are, I think might be helpful for you to describe what the current uh, regulations are with respect to reporting, because of course that's been in the news uh, for one of your colleagues, um, and what you're anticipating with uh, with respect to the, uh, uh, the the steps you're going to need to take to prove that an abortion you provided to a patient was medically necessary, and uh, uh, any, I think any of you can probably speak to that question, uh, uh, Dr. Wilkerson. Do you want to kick us off?
2: Yeah, I think that you know, piggybacking a little bit on what. Katie mentioned earlier, there have been years and years of abortion restrictions passed that have kind of created these onerous um, requirements to be done prior to um, the performance of a pregnancy termination. Um, and what is concerning about this legislation is that we do not have an exception for the health of the mother and so only the life and um, what that means is that doctors are going to have to interpret that and we always try to explain to people that there's no medical line between health and life at times and if your risk of criminal prosecution is the alternative you will see physicians waiting until patients are critically ill In order to intervene with life saving measures that should have been permitted earlier, we shouldn't have to wait to that point. And, you know, there's already data coming out of Texas, which is a few months ahead of us in terms of having a ban, unfortunately, where they examined, you know, women with pregnancy complications and 50% of them had to have ICU care that wasn't necessarily like. Um, you know would not have happened but because of the physicians concerns of repercussions criminal repercussions they refrained from providing the evidence based healthcare that they sh- could have provided without those restrictions
5: yeah and some of this gets into questions about things like ectopic pregnancies which are uh, when the fertilized egg implants in the fallopian tube it doesn't get all the way to the to the uterus and this I I heard horror stories about uh, the same sort of thing: a woman with an ectopic pregnancy being uh, having her doctor waiting until the absolute last minute, and that really can be fatal to the to the mother, absolutely life threatening, uh, and is not a viable pregnancy. Uh, that's not where that's that's not where fetuses grow, uh, and so uh, this gets to where you see the legislation going potentially. In terms of defining uh, when when there is a uh, when there is a, a, a fetus to be protected, uh, is it at the moment of fertilization or the moment of implantation? Uh, and that I think is also a piece of the uh, the legislation that they're considering. Uh, but I don't I don't know what you're hearing about that. And this gets us into a conversation about contraception. So. Um. Uh, are you hearing, are you hearing, are, I assume you have concerns about availability of contraception. Is it turning on these questions of, of when a pregnancy actually begins?
2: yeah i mean i think that we should be very concerned when legislation impacts medical care and i always remind people this is just the first round of legislation right you know our state legislators will be back in january to pass additional restrictions and the way the language is being written um in other states or model legislation, it is all encompassing. And so we should not um, sit back and think that this is the worst it can get. We are very, very concerned that it will continue to get worse. Nationally, there are calls for a national ban to abortion. And so right now we are working under the assumption that we will have states to send patients to. But, you know, based on the way elections work in the next few years, we could easily lose access to abortion nationally, um, which is terrifying and something that I think everybody should be thinking about um, because we have been concerned about the fall of Roe for years. I, I think Dr. Rouse and Dr. McHugh can tell you that we all have been called crazy for thinking that that we that this would never that this moment would never happen that they would never go this far. Um, and so, when we say that a national ban is coming next or they're coming after birth control next, I do hope people listen because our our concerns about where this is going um, are are based on years and years of attacks and. And and the reason behind these attacks not really being about abortion, but about control, and about control specifically of women's bodies.
1: You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and we're talking with three physicians about uh, the legislation that's going through the Indiana legislature that would ban abortion or add additional restrictions to abortion. We have Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, assistant professor of pediatrics at IU, Dr. Katie McHugh, an OB-GYN and abortion provider in Indiana, and Dr. Carolyn Rouse, a maternal fetal medicine specialist and assistant professor of OB-GYN at Indiana University. We did invite legislators and people who represent the legislation essentially that's going through that would re- further restrict abortion. Um, we didn't get any takers from folks on that side of the debate today. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to us. You can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also call us at 812 855 or toll free at 285-9348. We have a question that's come in. Uh, Dr. Dr. Wilkinson, this would be for you says, 12 to 14% of adopted children are diagnosed with mental health disorders yearly. That's what the questioner says. Can you talk about what kinds of services will need to be increased to support pediatric care? How easy is it to obtain very expensive therapy and other types of care for more serious struggles? And then the, the follow-up question to that is what, does, what do you think about the wraparound services lawmakers are offering?
2: Um, yeah, I will take uh, the first question. Um, it, you know, it's not easy to access mental health care. Um, it wasn't easy before the pandemic. And as I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, it became much more difficult with the increase of mental health service demand as a result of the COVID pandemic. Um, and we're not really seeing that decrease in pediatrics. We are seeing a lot of Um, patients that need that extra support. And so um, that is important and something that we can continue to provide in the state. Um, And I would say that um, when you start forcing decisions upon people, that does not help their mental health either. So I anticipate the stress and the burdens that this legislation will bring to our families and my patients will only exacerbate um, the mental health um, crisis that we see happening already. Um, the second question about the services that have been proposed, the wraparound services that have been proposed. I mean, I'm embarrassed that we have so many legislators that are you know, posturing for years that they are pro-life and just now we're starting to think, about investing in wraparound services. And so what I would say is that it is not enough. We need millions, probably billions more. There was a recent analysis of how much Indiana spends per citizen on public health, and we are one of the least um, spenders in the country. And so when you look at those numbers, it's not surprising the outcomes that we have. Um, And what I did not see in that proposal was, you know, Childcare coverage. I did not see universal pre-K. I did not see um, paid family leave for these parents that are now going to be having children to take care of. And so there is so much more. Um, and unfortunately, we watched last night multiple Democrat um, amendments to this bill be voted against, um, including an amendment around you know, insurance coverage for pregnant women when they did not qualify for Medicaid. That was not accepted. So all the Republicans voted against that. And so I would say that, you know, this wraparound measure is like, I think their defense to, you know, never investing in this in the past, but I think it's wholly insufficient.
1: All right. The percentage came from the Claudia Black Young Adult Center, I should should say, should clarify. Yes. I also wanted to ask you, um, before we move on to to a couple of couple of questions for our other guests, but I wanted to ask you about the, the column that you wrote, the essay r- you wrote for the New York Times. Um, your colleague, uh, Caitlin Bernard, has been in the news and you started out that column by saying she was supposed to co-write the essay with you. Um, you talked about the chilling effect that the Supreme Court decision has had on medicine, um, and then Todd Rakita's office has been investigating your colleague uh, after the uh, well-documented, now, um, her treatment for, with a, a 10-year-old patient. Could you talk about you know why you thought it was important to write that essay and some of the key points that you wanna make from that?
2: Yeah, I, um, I've, you know, Dr. Bernard and I had um, approached the New York Times to write an op-ed together about the chilling effect we were feeling already on the ground in Indiana, um, and we're working on the piece. And then simultaneously, um, the story uh, about the patient that she had taken care of kind of exploded on the national and international um, landscape. Um, and none of us Anticipated that um, attacks from our attorney general on national news platforms would follow, um, that uh, she would be physically threatened, um, and that her ability to continue speaking and writing was not protected anymore. And so I you know, remember the phone call when I asked her if I could continue to write and to be the voice that she could not be at that moment to try and make the case that this is no longer only chilling abortion providers. It is chilling all clinical providers in our state to watch one of our colleagues who offers tirelessly compassionate evidence-based healthcare be attacked on a national platform by some would say the most powerful person in our state um, for no reason other than the fact that um, he can And that is very, very terrifying. All of the providers in Indiana are, are scared that they could be the next Dr. Bernard on Fox News, being attacked, being investigated. and. You know, you don't have to be an abortion provider for these laws to apply
5: to you anymore. Yes, and we've seen also some word that, yes, yeah, she is she is concerned for her safety and the safety of her family because of some of these attacks. And there is, um, I believe, she is moving on uh, some legal action uh, because, of course, she didn't. The law that was currently in place when she performed that abortion was, um, so she did she did it legally and she followed all the reporting requirements as well. Um, so I I wonder uh if we could talk a little more about these kinds of very complicated cases. I think I think clearly you know one of the kind of broad broadly speaking biggest problems with any kind of abortion legislation is that as you've all been very eloquently and passionately speaking to, the decision to have an abortion is very complicated and it rests on a lot of very sometimes idiosyncratic conditions and circumstances and to you know pass legislation that tries to make it be a sort of black and white decision is where um, so much of the complication uh, comes from. And a lot of those turn on cases um, where there is uh, an at-risk pregnancy, where there are complications to the fetus or the mother. And I wonder... Um, uh, Carrie, maybe you could speak to this, since you specialize in uh, at-risk pregnancies, is to just give us some examples of how you've dealt with those kinds of circumstances, how you anticipate these are going to go. Uh, and, and and I have a follow-up question, but I'll ask it when, you're, when you've answered that one.
2: Okay.
4: Um, you know, I, it's... Uh, Great that you brought up the black and white issue. I think that our um, legislature would prefer that medicine be black and white and it it is just not, Um, you know, each individual patient comes into the doctor with their own medical history and social history and current circumstances um, and like I mentioned before, my job is to use all of that information together, which is unique for each individual patient, to help them make the decision uh, based on the evidence-based options that I provide to them. That is best for themselves and their family. Um, and when you try to legislate that, people are going to get hurt because there is no possible way that you can account for every single, uh, you know, different circumstance that is going to come up. It's it just will not happen. Um, you know, so for example, um, I, uh, take, particular care of, uh, or have a particular uh, clinical subspecialty in pregnant people who have pre-existing heart disease. Um, and while some heart disease is well tolerated in pregnancy, other heart disease is, is really not tolerated in pregnancy and is in fact quite dangerous. Um, and so if a patient comes to me with one of those conditions in early pregnancy, we have a very frank conversation about her risk of having worsening heart function, um, abnormal heart Rhythm, uh potentially needing cardiac procedures during pregnancy and even death during pregnancy or the postpartum period um, and there are patients who decide to continue the pregnancy and in which case we take the best care of them and keep them as safe as we can for as long as we can um, and there are patients who decide to terminate the pregnancy and i just do not see how it is the job of our legislature to get in the middle of of that discussion and to make that decision for the patient when they cannot make it for themselves.
5: And and in, in these cases as well, there is also, even though the fetus may be fine, the, uh, there still is some risk with respect to the mother's health for the health of the newborn. And I wonder if you could talk a little more about what you see as some potential, in a sense, downstream effects from um, women who are in uh, kind of dire straits medically giving birth, and the effect that that has on the newborn, and then the the need for additional care um, that we that we also need to invest in. Uh-huh. What are those relationships?
4: Um, So that is a great question. You know, pregnancy carries risk, even for people who come into it totally healthy and who have no complications. Um, You know, things like preeclampsia, development of new heart failure um, uh, can happen during pregnancy. Um, We know that uh, one of the most common causes of death during pregnancy in the postpartum period um, is homicide. Domestic violence rates are higher for people who are pregnant. so, you know, all of those things are possible even for people who don't have pre existing conditions. Um, and so, the downstream effects of um, preeclampsia, for example, which is a high blood pressure condition that happens in pregnancy, those people are at elevated risk of lifelong cardiovascular disease. Um, and so, you know, to um, to take into account all of those downstream complications. I, I don't think that's something that this legislature has done in the crafting of this proposed legislation.
1: We're talking about the potential legislation that's moving through the Indiana General Assembly in this special session this year about um, banning abortion and much further restrictions to abortion. We have three guests that are all physicians who work with um, pregnant people about uh, who are going to have a, a baby, uh, Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, the system pro- professor of pediatrics at Indiana University, Dr. Katie McHugh, OBGYN, gyn an and abortion provider in Indiana, and Dr. Carolyn Carey-Rouse, who's a maternal fetal medicine specialist and an assistant professor of OBGYN at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, please send them to us at news at org. Or you can call in at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also follow us on Twitter. Send us um, your questions to, to uh, at Noon Edition. Um, I wanted to ask uh, Dr. McHugh, I know you may have to leave early, but before before you do, I want to ask you about, you know, you, you talked about um, in a, a different interview about how, you know, you feel a duty to abortion-seeking patients in the state, and if you're no longer allowed to provide abortions for your patients here, that you might seek um, to be able to practice medicine in nearby states like Illinois. Is what's behind that decision?
3: That's a really interesting question, Um, and it's not something that I I really had considered before the Supreme Court decision came down. Um, I am um, a lifelong Hoosier. I love this state. I love being here. My family is all here. Um, I want to raise my kids here. And yet, when my state tries to criminalize the work that I do and um, the work that is based on guidance from every major national um, medical organization, it's difficult for me to stay. When I talk about leaving the state, um, I have already pursued medical licensure in three other states so that I can uh, provide care in other states if only by means of traveling to those states from a home base of Indiana. Um, But my family and I are in discussions about what this will mean and especially if Indiana continues along the path that we are on now where we are talking about this criminalization I don't know how I could physically stay in the state. This is a dangerous place uh, for someone like me, who is um, a, an outspoken advocate um, and public abortion provider. Um, it is difficult for me to to consider being um, in a state that believes that I am a criminal for providing uh, compassionate medical care. So, it's it's difficult to say, and it's a difficult decision. Um, but I. You know, I always come back to the idea that this is not the will of the people. This is not a representation of of Hoosier ideals and Hoosier values. Um, The the legislature that we have um, exists because of gerrymandering and because of voter suppression. And it's difficult to um, to to marry those two concepts when it comes to knowing how to best take care of my neighbors and friends here um i want to stay i want to be here but it's it's hard to be here in a state um that doesn't believe that um i am a full citizen as a person with a uterus and as a woman um it's difficult to stay in a state that doesn't you know uphold my right as a as a whole person beyond my reproductive capabilities and it's difficult to be here as an abortion provider um in a state that views me as a criminal
5: well, as a fellow Hoosier, I'm very, very sorry to hear you say that, and I uh, certainly understand why uh, why you're considering these decisions. Um, speaking of traveling out of state, you're probably currently seeing a lot of patients from other states. I mean, abortion is still legal in the state of Indiana up to 22 weeks, I believe, um, until these laws go into effect. Uh, and so at, just as we saw with the 10-year-old child who came from Ohio, uh, there are people coming into the state to to seek abortions are you are you treating a lot more out of state patients at the moment? So,
3: so many, so many people from out of state because Indiana was in this interesting position of not having a trigger ban, um, we were able to increase our access for the first time ever indiana became a refuge for patients seeking abortion care for these few weeks that we're able to um, able to increase our access and able to provide this care so we have more than doubled our appoint number of appointments at all of the clinics where i work throughout the state so uh i have been seeing about um about 50% of the people that I see are from out of state. A lot of people from Ohio and Kentucky, but I've seen patients from as far away as Texas and Oklahoma and Alabama. Um, this week, I, almost everyone I saw had had traveled more than a few hours um, to just get to my clinic. And this was, of course, the second day in a row that they had to do that because of our state-mandated waiting period. Uh, so, the, the the patients are desperate for this care. They will find this care, no matter where they have to go, um, or if it is safe. And for now, Indiana is a refuge. And. From a business perspective, can you imagine the dollars that are coming into our state uh, at our gas stations, at our restaurants, at our hotels, uh, et cetera, for these people seeking out compassionate and evidence-based medical care? And instead of embracing these folks, uh, we are preparing to be another pass-through state, another flyover state where they have to pass through us to get to a different place that will treat them as a whole person who deserves to make a healthcare decision mm-hmm. about their body and about their family size uh, so we are doing our best to accommodate people and patients as much as we can until the last possible moment uh, that we'll be able to provide this care yeah
5: I want to ask a question that I think all three of you could speak to, which sort of goes back a bit to an earlier discussion about what the, what the implications are for young young medical professionals, you know, all the way to medical students and certainly to to residents. Which is the degree to which you know doctors are are trained to uh, do no harm, are trained to use their best judgment. Uh, in situation medical situations uh, and in across a whole range of of care situations um, and and this is the ability of doctors to be autonomous in that decision making is uh, a big piece of what is part of what attracts people to the profession and keeps them satisfied, continuing to be able to exercise their their best medical judgment. And I'm wondering if, if any of you see a spillover effect on other uh, specialties with respect to the ability of trained medical professionals to use their best judgment in other situations. Uh, let, end of life care might be another, maybe analogous to abortion care, um, and whether whether or not there are ever any legis- there's any uh, legislation passed re- with respect to something like end of life care. But but a spillover effect in terms of culture and attitude and just psychological impact uh, on young medical professionals with. Restrictions on on certain parts of of how doctors operate do you do you do you are you concerned about that do you see the potential for that going forward and and Dr Wilkinson yeah. any of you could could grab that and, and run with it
2: yeah I we absolutely do I think what's really important and something that you know I kind of center all of my resident education on is patient centered care. And that we should be providing our patients with all the options, but letting these decisions in medicine lie with patients. That is a theme that should be in all of medicine. Whether you're talking about to pursue chemotherapy when you have a cancer diagnosis, to continue treatment at the end of somebody's life, or you know, any decision around a pregnancy. And ultimately, these attacks are impacting our ability to let these decisions stay with the patients. And instead, these decisions are being handled at our state house. And so all of us that practice medicine should be incredibly enraged that they're taking this decision not from us, but from our patients. And that impacts anybody who touches a patient that is, you know, a human, in my opinion, and especially anybody who's pregnancy capable or somebody who could get somebody pregnant. You know, I think we often focus this discussion on pregnancy capable individuals, but, you know, they have partners, they have communities, they have families that involved beyond just their pregnancy capabilities and we need to acknowledge that those people are part of this conversation as well and when we talk about training you know we We, you know, residents and fellows and when they try to get their next job, they are thinking about where they wanna raise their families eventually. And when you live in a climate like this, that takes away your personal decisions, but also your ability to practice medicine in the way that we should be practicing medicine, why would you wanna stay? I
1: have a a question that's come in that's really a natural follow up to that because it's a question from one of our uh, members of our audience. Talks about how during the Religious Freedom Restoration Act discussion in uh, 2015, multiple companies, including CEOs from Anthem, Eli Lilly and Company, Indiana University Health, sent letters to Governor Pence and uh, Senator Bosma, uh, Representative Bosma, raising concerns about the negative image being labeled on the state and the fact that it was going to hurt business. But yet it seems like there's silence now and the questioner says, any thoughts on this? Why the silence from the corporations now? Anybody wanna handle that?
2: I mean, I think it's really disappointing. I think it's incredibly disappointing. This is about equality and this is about um, you know human rights. And I don't understand where the business community is not thinking that this is their lane, to be a hundred percent honest. Um, and, you know, part of it also is that this is a special session and this has been called in a much more rapid format than the regular legislative session usually is. But, you know, when it comes to making sure your employees are treated equally, I'm not really sure how this doesn't apply.
5: Well, and I think there's also, I mean, there is an economic effect here in with respect to businesses that would perhaps be thinking of locating in this state and uh, and the repercussions for health care and health care coverage. Uh, there have been some companies, uh, but I, I confess they're probably, they may not have been in the state of Indiana. I don't know that I, I necessarily tracked that, who have spoken out very vocally and said they will pay for... Uh, employees to travel to other states if those uh, p- employees are in a state that that, that has abortion restrictions, uh, and but I think the the point here is is that there there are going to be some economic effects here, and it is something certainly that affects uh, the business community and all of us um, with respect to you know who's who's going to be here offering jobs. Uh, so I uh, any other any other comments on the sort of a question about. Uh, just the general downstream effects of of uh, of these kinds of restrictions on medical care in general. That anyone any of you might like to offer.
3: This is Katie speaking. Um, I have um, some different thoughts. I, I'm not an academic uh, physician. I have been in the past, but I'm not currently. And being outside of the larger picture of academia, um, it is. It's a different um, perspective to look at how healthcare um, is discussed and how healthcare is talked about among. Um, not only my physician colleague but just patients and, and people that I talk to and um, and just in the larger community uh, people care deeply about this issue, but it has such a stigma to it whereas um, whereas uh, LGBTQ um, issues didn't have the same um, the same negative effect. Um, and the same shame that abortion um, does. And I say that as a queer person. So it is, I think it's a little bit different. And and again, being outside of academia where uh, we have many of the similar mindsets, um, outside it's, it's different. So I think that there is, um, significant concern about funding and there's significant concern about state uh, dollars that are allocated to different um businesses including um including hospitals you know hospitals are a business and while um abortion is healthcare without a doubt um hospital systems are also a business and they have some financial concerns about speaking out more more uh fervently in support of their physicians um and the state's ability to provide medical care so i think this is a little bit more of a nuanced issue uh when it comes to the business and economic impact uh simply because there is fear for economic fallout um, despite the fact that Hoosiers are overwhelmingly in support of at least some abortion access. So again, it comes back to the fact that um, our state legislature does not accurately represent our um, state's demographics and our state's opinions, and instead has a very biased and um, Christian-centric view of what our state should be doing with its dollars and with its laws
1: i want to ask this is probably a almost an explosive question to throw in here at the end but and and dr rouse i guess i want to ask you first because you've dealt with a lot of very serious um pregnancy issues but you know there are people on the other side of this argument um, from the three of you who would say you know it's it's taking a life abortion is taking a life and we just don't think that should ever happen in this case, what what do you say to those people, Dr. Rouse?
4: So I think my colleague, Dr. Bernard, said it really well um, in uh, an interview that she did, which is if abortion does not fit in with your religious beliefs, with your view of what you are doing with your life and in your life, then don't have an abortion. Um, I am taking care of the patient in front of me, who is, you know, trying to make the best decision for themselves and their family, um, and I just do not think that any other person or legislative body should get in the middle of that decision.
1: All right. Thank you. That was a great great answer to uh, a. A tough question here at the end of the show. We are out of time, and I want to thank all three of you for spending time with us today. Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, uh, from, uh, an assistant professor of pediatrics at IU, Dr. Katie McHugh, an OBGYN, gyn an and abortion provider in Indiana, and Dr. Carrie Rouse, a maternal-fetal medicine specialist and assistant professor of OB-GYN at IU. For Lori McRobbie and for our producer today, Benta Boutier, and uh, Nathan Moore and Kathy Knapp, and for engineer Mike Pascash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from
0: Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security and automation in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, Offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.